So we're coming to the next part in the series in Daniel. Um, it has been quite a few months since the last one. I think it was probably July on it. Um, so, so you probably can't remember what I talked about last time, which is fair enough because I couldn't when I started preparing. Um, so I thought I'd do a, a quick recap of Daniel before we kind of get into, into chapter 5. Um, so, so Daniel was um, an Israelite from Judah. Um, the Babylonians had come to Judah and had taken uh, the people of Judah into exile in Babylon. Um, and, and they'd done that as um, that, that was God's judgment on the people. Um, so Daniel was writing from exile in, in Babylon. Um, and yeah, he was writing to, to these Israelites um, who, who were kind of, the, they were away from God's temple. They were away from the land that God had promised them. Um, they were kind of uh, spread out um, in, this, in this pagan country um, and, and Daniel was, was writing to those people um, and, and telling them of, of what was going on um, with, with the kings. So I think um, I've got a brief outline of what we've talked about in Daniel so far. So chapter 1, uh, Daniel and his friends uh, come to Babylon and they, they refuse to be assimilated into the Babylonian culture. They, um, they, they want to stay pure and, and holy and godly. And so, so they make a stand. Uh, chapter 2, um, we, we explained to 2 because there was quite a lot in it. Um, and, and Nebuchadnezzar has a dream um, about this statue. And, uh, and Daniel interprets it. And um, it's basically God saying... Um, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is quite, is quite good, but actually it's not going to last forever, but God's kingdom is. Uh, chapter 3, we saw Daniel's friends who were sent into the furnace for not bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Um, and, and again, they made, made a stand against the idols of Babylon. Um, and last time, we, we saw the, the weird dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about a tree, um, and, and eventually God humbles him by sending him um, for seven years to go and live um, basically as a wild animal until he, he, he realises until he lifts his eyes to heaven and worships God um, and that's, that's the last we hear about Nebuchadnezzar um, so this chapter you might have noticed um, there's a new king on the throne King Belshazzar uh, although he's not actually a king um, technically speaking uh, the king was called um, Nabonidus uh, I think I've got a bit of a time on there yep the king was called Nabonidus, um, but he used to go off all the time, <coughs> um, sort of, you know, with wars, and, um, and apparently he went off for a time to go and worship a certain god in a certain place, and he left Belshazzar in charge as his regent. Um, so this is just a bit of a timeline. So 605 was when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne and he went and raided Judah. Uh, 562 is when his reign ended. There was a couple of um, kings in between, um, but they're pretty insignificant. They only reigned for sort of like a year or, or less in some cases. Um, and then Nabonidus becomes the ruler in 556 BC. Um, and and uh, yeah, after only three years, he kind of puts his, his son Belshazzar in charge. Um, and, and it kind of basically stays that way until 539, which is what, what we're reading about here when the Medes and the Persians come in. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a quick history lesson um, of, of where we're at 
um, when we come to read chapter 5. Um, so, so, yeah, chapter 5, the writing on the wall. If you ever wondered where that phrase comes from, the writing on the wall, it's this, from right here in Daniel chapter 5. Um, so, so, yeah, there's, there's something interesting to start with. Um, on a completely different note, I wonder if any, anyone watched the athletics at the Olympics. I wonder if anyone didn't. Uh, I think mo- most people did. Um, if you saw any of the track events that were sort of like you know, 400, 800 metres, um, you'll know that the, the athletes, do, um, when, when they start the race, they don't start at the same position that they're on the track. They're kind of staggered. Hopefully there's a picture here. Um, that's from the Paralympics. Um, the 400 metres, they don't all start together. They start staggered because the outside lane is longer than, than the inside lane. It's actually about... Um, if, if they started at the same place, the person in the outside lane would run an extra 60 metres over that 400 metres, um, which, if you do the maths, it means that if, if they did a 10,000 metre race staggered, the person on the outside would have to start four laps ahead of the person on the inside, which is quite interesting, but completely irrelevant to what we're talking about here. Um, <laughs> so, <coughs> so, basically, the, um, the reason I'm, I'm uh, talking about this is that the Bible tells us that there's a spiritual battle going on or a, a spiritual race, if, you can, um, kind of, if I can kind of use that analogy. Um, and it's, it's light versus dark. It's good versus evil. It's God versus the devil. And it can seem at times like God is behind, like he's losing. Um, but the reason that it can seem like that is, is because, in a way, God is on the inside lane. And we're looking at it from, um, from the middle of the race, when it looks like the devil's ahead. But actually, God is, God is winning. He, he is going to win. And Daniel is our commentator, in a way, who knows his stuff, who can see exactly what is going on. And, and he tells us um, that, that, no, it might look like the devil's ahead, but actually, um, the, the race is not in any doubt. The winner is not in any doubt. It's going to be God. So, well, what, what do I actually mean when I say the devil looks like he's ahead? Well, I'm, I'm talking about the fact that most people in our world ignore God. And they, they rebel against him. You know, people, people couldn't care less about God. They, they use his, his name as a swear word. And they, they ridicule him, and they mock and persecute his people. Where, where is God while all of this is happening? Is he, is, you know, is, is he not as powerful as the devil? Is he, is he not able to save his people from those things? Well, I think this chapter um, that we've read in Daniel um, gives us great encouragement if, if these are things that we think about. Um, so I want to firstly walk through the story again um, and have a look at the character of Belshazzar and look at God's response to him. And then I just want to take a closer look at those three words um, that were written on the wall um, and, and talk about what, what they mean. Um, so I've got for you four Ps, um, which will hopefully help, help you remember things. Um, I, I do like to have alliteration, as you know. Um, so, so we've got four Ps, 
that will take us through the story. And the first one is profaning. Um, so, so yeah, like defiling. It's kind of the same word. And we start off um, with King Belshazzar throwing this big banquet. I quite like the word banquet. It's got the idea of lots of food, on there, And that's, um, yeah, if you know me, uh, I like that idea. But, but Belshazzar has got this party going on. And there's loads of important people there. And the wine is flowing. I guess this is probably quite normal for him. It's nothing out of the ordinary. Um, you know, he's, he's the king. He can, he can throw parties all he likes. He's got a big palace. He's got all the money in the world. He's got all his servants to prepare his food for him. But things start to get a bit out of hand. If you remember back in chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar, when he took the people from Judah, also went into the temple and he took some of the, the temple artifacts, um, some of the special, like, sacred things um, that were part of the temple. And he takes out the goblets and he decides it would be a good idea to start drinking the wine from these goblets. Um, and... Yeah, it, doesn't, it doesn't really say why he does this um, but I reckon it's probably because he wants to show off to his friends um, you know, he's, he's saying look at me, I can, I can do whatever I want you know, these, these sacred um, these sacred goblets, I can just use them for drinking at a party, you know, no problem I'm, I'm it, I'm powerful I can do what I want so yeah, and then and then if we read on, the, the rest of the night they just spend worshipping idols. Um, idols made of, of silver. And uh, that, yeah, best for gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Um, all these different idols worshipping them. So we're kind of given an idea here, um, pretty early on, about what kind of person Belshazzar is. Um, he's, a, he's a bit of a show-off. He wants people to know that he's powerful and, and he can do what he likes. He doesn't really care about the true God that, that his father Nebuchadnezzar or his um, well it says, it says his father in the book and um, the, the word there can mean like ancestor it doesn't necessarily mean immediate father um, but he doesn't, he doesn't care about the God that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped that he's, he's got to have heard about. He's got no problem with profaning God's name, defiling the, the temple artifacts, giving praise to idols. But I, I think most people in our country, if they read this, they wouldn't see much wrong with it really, would they? I don't think. Um, what was Belshazzar really done wrong? He's just got drunk and had some fun. He's not, he's not hurting anyone, is he? I don't know, maybe you, maybe you think the same way. What has he really done wrong? But the problem with this attitude is that it assumes that um, when we come to working out what's right and wrong, our decision should be based on how it affects other people. We're looking at the horizontal. Um, you know, th- this, is, this is wrong because it hurts someone else. This is right because it, do- it doesn't hurt someone else. But the Bible's got a different view of what's right and wrong. And it's, it's not to do with the horizontal, but the vertical. And actually, let's think about, um, about God. Does it offend God? Because sin is ultimately not against each other. Even though, even though sin does hurt other people most of the time, and that's not an accident. 
But um, sin is, is primarily against God. But, yeah, listen, listen to these words of David in Psalm 51. Uh, quite a famous verse, really. So David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and he'd had her husband killed. Um, so, yeah, pre- pretty bad stuff, really. And David says this, Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. It's talking to God there. Saying, even though I've um, committed adultery, even though I've murdered someone, it's against God that I've sinned. So our sin is, is primarily against God, which is why what Belshazzar does is so wrong. Okay, so the second P is, well, two, two for the price of one, petrified and pale. God decides that he's going to do something about Belshazzar's sin. The party is in full swing when, verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. The king's terrified. His face goes pale, his knees knock together. And I don't know about you, but I don't blame him. This, this hand just appearing in the air and writing on the wall. Um, it's, it's pretty crazy. Hands, hands don't really do anything if, if they're not connected to the body, do they? Unless it's, um, what was it, was it Thing in the Adams family? It was a disembodied hand. But hand, hand, hands don't do that. Um, so it's, it's pretty scary. And uh, Belshazzar's response is pretty familiar to us now. It's happened every, every chapter in Daniel, basically. When, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, he called together all his enchanters and his sorcerers and astrologers. And Belshazzar does exactly the same. But as usual, they're not much good. They can't work out what's going on. They don't know what the writing means. So the king becomes even more scared, even more pale. And this is, this is the guy in charge of a great nation. He's, he's been left in charge of this, this, this big nation. And he's quaking in his boots. I imagine someone in his position isn't really frightened of very much at all. Um, uh, I think he would have had plenty of guards to protect him. Um, although they must have been asleep at the end of this chapter um, when they let the, the Persians in. But God is able to strike fear into his heart. God begins to show his power over Nebuchadnezzar um, by causing him to be afraid. Uh, the third P is proud. He's proud. Um, so af- after, um, after all his enchanters can't work out what's going on, um, the, the queen says, actually, don't you remember that guy, Daniel, who interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dreams? He, he should be able to solve your problem for you. Um, it's, it seems quite odd that, that Belshazzar wouldn't have heard of Daniel. Um, it seems uh, like quite, quite a, a significant thing, um, what happens, especially in chapter 4 um, with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so may, maybe, he's just, maybe he's just forgotten. Um, but, but yeah, basically he, he does call in Daniel. Um, he says, okay, let's, let's bring him in, see what he can do. And the king offers him the, the reward, the same reward that he's offered everyone else. Um, but Daniel doesn't want it. What he does want is for Belshazzar to listen 
as he tells him um, about God and, and warns him about what's going to come. So Daniel explains to him um, about Nebuchadnezzar. He reminds him. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he was a great and powerful king. He could do what he wanted with anyone, but only because God gave him that power. And he didn't realise it at first, but God sent him away and humbled him and caused him to see that, that actually it was God who had given him the power. It wasn't from within himself. Um, and Daniel, I think Daniel makes it clear that Belshazzar did know all of this, but he hasn't heeded the, the warning, he hasn't learned from history. Um, and, yeah, he, I, don't, I don't think these, these acts of profaning God's name, defiling the, the temple, um, goblets, I don't think this was like a one-off thing. I think this is, you know, kind of one strike and he was out. It seems like basically um, Belshazzar's life is marked with pride and marked with the worship of idols um, and, and basically not wanting anything to do with God. Even though, even though he'd seen what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he'd done the same thing. Um, so Daniel warns him that his time's up. And he warns him that when he faces God, things are not going to look good for him. Um, so the fourth P is perished. It seems that uh, Belshazzar doesn't take any notice of Daniel. Um, what, what's his reaction? Um, if, if you've still got your Bibles open, um, and look over to verse 20, 29. Um, after Daniel said all of this after he's given him the warning what does Belshazzar do uh, he, he clothes Daniel in purple a gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom and that's, that's it you know with, with Nebuchadnezzar at least there was some recognition of who God was and his power but there's none of that with Belshazzar there's no indication that he's taken any notice of Daniel's warning. Um, just, just two quick little asides. Um, the guy mentioned at the end of the chapter, Darius the Mede, he's probably the same person under a different name as uh, King Cyrus, um, who you might remember from Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, he was the one who sent the people back to uh, Jerusalem. Um, so there's kind of some linking stuff to keep in your mind. Um, the other thing is that this is basically a miracle, um, a, an incredible thing that happens where the laws of nature are suspended and Belshazzar, you know, it still doesn't cause him to turn to God. A lot of people say, if, if only I saw a miracle, then I would believe in God. But it's, it's just not true. Um, you know, Jesus did tons of miracles in front of thousands and thousands of people and hardly any of them um, were, were following him by the time he died um, so that, yeah, that's just a couple of little sides anyway let's, let's get back um, to the main thrust of the chapter I think the story is basically a, a great encouragement to the Israelites who would have been reading it um, they thought God had left them 
that he wasn't in control, that he wasn't going to be able to keep his promises. Um, but as we've seen in earlier chapters, God is still in charge. He cares about his people. And he cares about holiness as well. And he, and he despises sin. And he wants to bring judgment for it. And I think this chapter should, in the same way, be a great encouragement to us. The Bible talks about Christians being strangers in a foreign land, just as the Israelites were. We're in exile here on earth, really. Our real home is in heaven with God. And we're scattered um, all over the world among unbelievers. And so, like the Israelites, we've got to live in a, in a sinful, fallen world where morality is, is based on, you know, what's good for me. And where it's hard to have a conversation or to switch on the TV without someone using God's name as a swear word. And where the God of the Bible is ignored at best. And, and you know, often, often is despised and ridiculed. And there are all sorts of false gods that people worship and don't care about the one true God. So, where is God when these things are happening? Why doesn't he do something? Isn't he powerful enough to, to defend himself? What about those Christians living in North Korea and Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia where to become a Christian um, you, know, you can be chucked out of your family, you can be put in prison, you can be killed for becoming a Christian. He's gone far away when that happens. Is he unable to save them? Well I think this chapter answers, um, answers these questions with a resounding no. God is able to rid the world of those who mock him and ridicule him. But the fact that he doesn't is not a sign of his weakness, but a sign of his patience and his grace. So that's our four Ps. Um, Let's have a think about what the writing on the wall actually was. There were four words, two of them are the same. Um, I've no idea how they're supposed to be pronounced. Um, I don't speak ancient Aramaic, but um, I think it's something like mene, mene, tackle, parting. Sounds like some kind of spell from Harry Potter or something, doesn't it? Um, <coughs> anyway, the, those enchanters and the, the Babylonians couldn't understand it. I don't know why. I don't know if it was like if it was incurred or they just couldn't work out the meaning of these things. Um, basically, they're all weights or measures. Um, so mene and tekel um, are sort of they're basically the same words as minor and shekel, which are kind of currency or or weights. And parting is, is like parts, like divisions, half a shekel or you know half a minor. Um, but they've got more meaning to them, obviously, as we've read. Uh, so many, Daniel explains it, verse 26, as God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Um, I guess the fact that it's repeated just stresses how close uh, Daniel is, uh, how close Belshazzar is to the, to the end of his reign. You know, his, days, his days are numbered. How, how many are they numbered? Not a rhetorical question. How many days are Belshazzar's days numbered? 
one, yeah, or zero. He's like, this is it, innit? This is last day. His days are really numbered. Yeah. His life has come to an end, this is it. Um, and, yeah, I think just as Belshazzar's reign was coming to an end, so the devil's reign over this world um, is, is coming to an end as well. And we don't, we don't know how many days um, the devil has got left. God does, but he doesn't tell us. Um, but we can know with certainty that, um, that God will overpower the devil and, and he will rule over him. The second word is uh, tackle, which Daniel tells us means you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting, or you've not measured up, um, one translation puts it. Um, I think that idea of there being a pair of scales is quite popular um, in our culture, isn't it? Um, people like to think, um, if, if there is a God, when I meet him face to face, um, you know, and he weighs my good deeds against my bad, my good deeds will outweigh my bad, so I'll be alright. Um, and I think uh, for that reason, Christians can be quite uncomfortable with that picture. Um, there's a pair of scales, good deeds are the, the little green circles, um, and bad deeds, the red ones. The good outweighs the bad, I'll be fine, I'm in. But, um, but that's not really the gospel, is it? Um, but at the same time, that picture is used. In, in this chapter in Daniel so let's go with it a minute and see, see where it takes us now the problem is that we're using our own definitions of good and bad that we talked about earlier um, we're using the, the horizontal good and bad definitions rather than the vertical so actually um, there's, there's a lot more bad than we think um, if, if bad is offence against God it doesn't just include our actions, it doesn't just include our words, it includes our thoughts and our attitudes. And so, so we've got a problem there, haven't we? Now the bad outweighs the good. Um, but actually it's worse than that, isn't it? Because, uh, because everything that we do, even the good things, are tainted with sinful attitudes. So really, there's nothing there on the good side it's all there on the bad side and it's, it's looking really bleak and this is Belshazzar's problem isn't it this is the problem of every human who's ever lived when we stand before God nothing that we've done um, will, will help us to get into heaven to get into his good books this is what it looks like for all of us we're by nature in opposition to God in everything that we do but praise God that he's, he's provided a way um, that despite this we can still get into heaven. Because this is what Jesus' scales look like. Jesus lived a perfect life. Never did anything to offend God. He, he was completely pure, completely holy. And when he died on the cross he took on the sin of all those who trust in him. So that's, that's kind of what it looks like now. There's no good, there's no bad. But actually, we said before, remember before when we said, 
you know, this is how it looks, actually, it's worse than that. Well, this, actually, it's even better than that. Because Jesus didn't just take the bad things that we've done. He gave us the good things that he did. So we've swapped over. And now when we stand before God, um, when God looks at the scales and weighs us up, he sees the scales of Jesus. He sees all the good things that Jesus has done. He sees all of Jesus' goodness and perfection, and we will measure up because of that. Why is that relevant to our point today? Well, it's because there's a spiritual battle going on, as we said. And we want to be on the right side of that battle, don't we? By nature, we're not on God's side. So we need this. We need the cross. We need um, to trust in Jesus to save us so that we are on the right side, on the side that he's going to win. The cross is, is where the war was won. And we need to uh, be putting our trust in that. So I hope there's um, simple pictures are not, are not too confusing. I hope they're helpful. Um, well, finally we come to the word passing, which I'm going to put after that. Um, yeah, so we've got this word passing. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians, Daniel says. Belshazzar's kingdom was taken away from him and taken away from his family line. Um, Darius or Cyrus comes in and slays him and takes over the kingdom and that's it and equally God is going to put an end to Satan's kingdom to the rule of sin and death in this world it's not happened yet, it's in the future and uh, we, we, we don't know when it's going to happen but just as Belshazzar was Satan is going to be overpowered the writing is on the wall for him so if, if you are trusting in Jesus to make your scales measure up, then, then be encouraged. Be encouraged that when the world is in opposition to God, when it looks like God is, is not powerful, remember that he is. Remember that he's in charge, that he is in control, and that you will be on the winning side come judgment day. And if you're not a Christian... Well, I think you know what to do. Choose the winning side. Step out of darkness and step into light. Trust in Jesus for your salvation. And then when you stand before God on judgment day, you will measure up. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you are in control. That you are ultimately supreme in this world. Even though it can seem at times like, um, like the devil is winning, help us to remember um, that, that you have already won and, uh, and you will have the ultimate victory. And we thank you for Jesus and we thank you that because of him uh, we, we measure up to your standards, Lord. Lord, we, we can't do it by ourselves, but if we trust in Jesus, um, then, then we can um, and we, we will be safe with you. Amen.